Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny interviews Marcus Benedetti, CEO and third-generation owner of dairy company Clover Sonoma. Then, Danny interviews Robert Jones, global lead for the Nature Conservancy's aquaculture program. They discuss sustainability in the aquaculture and dairy industries. Enjoy the show. Before I introduce who someone who I consider a, an old friend now, Marcus Benedetti, the chief executive officer of Clover Sonoma, I want to talk about how BC, before COVID, dairy farmers were having a really, really tough time in the in the United States. Um, so let me sort of set the stage for you. Uh, again, before COVID, uh, the U.S. was producing more milk than ever before. Uh, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, U.S. milk production has increased by 13% since 2008. But Americans are consuming, consuming fewer dairy products, especially milk. Uh, in 1977, Americans consumed an average of 238 pounds of dairy products. About 30 years later, that number is 148 pounds per person, so uh, about a 91-pound decrease. Uh, dairy farmers are facing unprecedented challenges in addition to the pandemic. Uh, since 1970, the number of dairy farmers in the United States has also uh, has has dropped dramatically from 640,000 to around 37,000 today. Um, according to the National Farmers Union, nearly 70% of what consumers pay for the milk at the grocery store doesn't actually go to the farmer because of unfair pricing practices. A gallon of milk that retails for about $4.49 means that farmers only get a do- about $1.39 of that. And small family farmers continue to be driven out by larger operations as well as, as processing plants. Um, and during the pandemic, I'm sure you've seen news reports of, of raw milk being dumped because uh, dairy farmers didn't have a place to take it to process it, or they didn't have a market to sell it to. So, you know, they, uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, waste, unfortunately, that went on early, uh, during the pandemic. Um, and, and dairy farmers, uh, are, are facing a real sense of powerlessness, um, uh, that can lead to dire mental health, qu- uh, consequences. And this is true for farmers, uh, all over the world, but I think especially during the pandemic right now. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, farmers as a group have a higher suicide rate than any other occupation, even twice as high as as um, combat veterans. So, Marcus, as I said before, uh, we've we've known each other a bit now, and I've had the honor of, uh, honor of interviewing him uh, before in both person and for this podcast. As I as I said, he is the chairman and CEO of Clover Sonoma, and is the third generation of his family to lead the California. Dairy producer Clover is known for working with family dairy farms and maintaining high sustainability, recyclability, and quality standards. Marcus is an advocate for small family-owned farms and speaks regularly about the importance of helping consumers understand the value of farmers and sustainably grown or raised dairy products. Uh, Marcus also works very hard to raise awareness about the potential impacts of synthetic growth hormones and non-genetically modified organisms uh, and their impacts on consumers, animals, and farmers. Marcus, so nice to see you again. I wish it could be in person, but uh, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, it's great to be back with you. It's uh, really always a thrill to have these types of conversations. Uh, and it's also a great distraction from what we're all dealing with, uh, for sure. So I'm looking forward to today. Me too. Um, so for folks who haven't heard from you before, can you describe your company and sort of its values? I alluded to some of them, but I think it, it, it's always better when it comes from the, the person, uh, him or herself, who's really running this operation. Well, you did a great job, um, you know, putting into context our industry and our industry is, is challenged. And you mentioned it has been since Americans started consuming less milk, uh, not more milk. Um, and that's been the case uh, for all these decades. And, but it's not without its bright spots, um, for sure. There are different models and pockets across the country that can really uh, be a champion on behalf of the dairy farmer by virtue of telling their unique story back to the American consumer. And that's been really at the heart of our experiment. Um, we, we are the processor. We buy the raw milk from family farms and we turn it into products. But what we do as a processing plant really isn't any different than any other plant. What's unique to us is, is the story of our 32 families um, of which we get our milk from. And, and they're really the unique piece in our model. Some of them go back uh, five generations uh, in dairying here in kind of Marin and Sonoma County, California, in the north coast of California. They came from places like Italy, Portugal, Ireland, uh, Scotland. Right. And they emigrated to this area and took their old world skills and heritage and pedigree in dairying and came to Sonoma, Marin County, not out of coincidence. Um, the climate, the, uh, the overall geography was just a perfect place for them to replicate what they did back in the old world. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you, you think about the whole concept and notion of sustainability, we have to start and ask yourself, well, you know, they've been doing it for five generations. So inherently, mm -hmm. something is pretty sustainable about that model, right? And it starts with a, an intimate relationship that they have, not only with the land and all the inputs around dairy, but also with their, their cows. We're talking, on average, very small herds um, to where the owner is also the operator and they're also mm -hmm. part of the family. Um, and really, you can contrast that with what you mentioned earlier. Not unlike most industries, there's so much consolidation. Um, a lot of dairies now are... You know, 25,000, 30,000 cows, and they're corporately owned. Um, so at the heart of our model, it, it's, it's family. It's multi-generational family farmers. Um, it's not just their business. It's their way of life. It's their identity. It's who they are. And we were able to just, you know, create a basis of trust with them um, to do some really different things. It started back in the 90s for us. They were all selling to a co-op, which gives them great stability, um, security, but they don't necessarily benefit for all the good stuff that they're doing because by definition, right. you know, a co-op is collectively owned and everyone has to be treated equally. We realize that they, um, being who they are, some of their pioneering spirits, really wanted some an opportunity for additional incentives and that's when this whole crazy, you mentioned it in your opening, BST started. We we weren't operating much differently than most dairies until that happened. Right. That was introduced. We we knew one thing. We were grounded in terms of who our customers, who our consumers were. And, yeah. and let's face it, 
you know, Northern California, whether you, you like us, hate us, you're indifferent about it, <laughs> a lot of the movements and food start here. And we knew that our customers were kind of at the very least want a choice. And that's yeah. when we started that relationship with, at that time, 16 farmers to be able to go to the American consumer with absolute certainty to say, here's an alternative. We're not saying, you know, BST is bad, good. You deserve a choice because over time, consumers had less and less choice in their food systems. Right. And they wanted to be in control again, and they, they deserve that. They, they are entitled to that, and they can affect real change with how they spend their dollars. Mm-hmm. And so that concept, really, we built upon that, um, that concept. We, we had our dairy families pledge, commit not just affidavits, but indemnification clauses that they would never use it to where we had the security to really share that with American consumers. But when we did that, Danny, it, it, it was crazy. It was the response from consumers was, you know, there's so pent, much pent-up frustration and yeah. their lack of being able to have power over what they were buying at the grocery stores. And so we thought, you know, we we're going to get some degree of credit for doing that. And we did. But their point was, well, that's great, Clover, that you did this. But if you really want to garner our trust, what about B, C, D, E, F, and G that we care about? <laughs> So, so that's when the real work began and the real heavy lift. And we realized that that was going to come at a tremendous cost. And so yeah. the, the real um, risk and question mark was, well, could we effectively communicate that to the consumer? We felt really confident mm-hmm. that they would be willing to spend their social dollars supporting a model if we could only communicate that model effectively to them and in addition to the whole BST thing, the model really included, you know, the highest raw quality of milk, which translates to taste and flavor. But they wanted to know, hey, what about the central cast in this whole equation, the, the, the cow? How is she right. in this whole process? Um, that's when the American Humane Association had kind of realized our maverick stance on BST. And they said, hey, Clever, we have standards for poultry, swine, all kinds of animals, but we don't have them for dairy what do you think about tackling this issue? And so we said, well, we'll have to jointly tackle it with our dairy families. And so living room tables and kitchens of all those farms, we were able to to hammer out those standards. And so we just kind of kept building upon that model. But fundamentally was what those ranchers do on their ranch and how their ranch looks and how their animals are being treated. All that really has to comport with what the consumer's image is in their mind. And so ranch appearance seems like a, maybe not a trivial concept in this whole thing, but yeah. but it really wasn't. That you know that was part of their scorecard to get their incentive from us to where that urbanite coming up can see what it right. looks like and be right. happy and proud to know that that model exists. Uh, yeah, it, and it, it's such a an interesting model. I mean, you were you were well bo- uh, along this journey before many other companies who are sort of still trying to catch up. The fact that you placed a lot of of trust in and not just consumers, but also in in the farmers and in the land and in the cows themselves, I think is is you know really a, a fundamental part of why your company is successful. And and the fact that you know you're providing 
not only transparency, but traceability, because you have such a small, it, you know, you're, you're working with 32 family farms. It, it gives consumers a lot more confidence. And I, and I, you know, I, I think the storytelling aspect of what you do is what most, you know, made me want to sort of, you know, uh, talk to you, you know, be on panels with you because of the, that's the, the, what so many companies lack that ability to tell their story well. And you just, you know, spent a few minutes describing this wonderful journey and how it it goes back to really uh, consumer demand and the power that consumers have to change companies. That's, that's, that's what, you know, you can spend billions of dollars in focus groups. And, and if you, you miss the concept that you just stated, consumers deserve to be empowered and they can affect massive structural change with their purchasing habits. They just need to be offered a model that resonates with them. And, and our hope is that our model resonates, you know, w- with other dairies. Um, mm-hmm. and truly change a system by virtue of just being that example. Because we're small. We're not going to change the industry ourselves. But we can be perhaps a... Um, emblematic and aspirational of, you know, those dairies better angels, or we can also have the ability to pressure them competitively to have to do something like not use BST or address the sustainability issues or the animal welfare issues. So that, that is kind of fun to always kind of be out there on the, the bleeding. Yeah. You're, you're a shining light and you're also shining a spotlight on what's wrong with the rest of the industry. And I think those two components are really compelling to a lot of consumers. You know, you're the alternative, but this, this is what could happen if we thought of farmers and we thought of animals and we thought of the land in in very sustainable ways and in sustainable economically, environmentally, and socially. And, and I think that's what a lot of uh, the consolidation in the dairy industry has prevented that from happening. You're, you're, they're just thinking about volume. And and those farmers can't be blamed for that. They're sort of locked into a system that, that forces them to do that because of, you know, poor, poor uh, subsidies, uh, you know, strategies uh, around subsidies that, that, you know, force them to do that. They're locked into loans and, and, and other things that sort of put them on a, on a vicious cycle that they can't get out of. That's right. I mean, it's tragic. I mean, you mentioned the mental health state. You've read about the suicide rates um, of those farmers, again, because it's not just losing your business. It's it's losing your identity. It's losing your pride. It's losing all those things. If you or I were laid off tomorrow, we would, we would deal with it, right? There's a way forward. But if for generations your identity was wrapped up in operating a dairy in the land that you inherited from your father and mother and they inherited from them it's much more than losing a paycheck it's it's in many ways losing everything short of their family right and it's tragic and i you know i would not begin to have a prescription for it for the industry writ large but i do think what you said is really important you know, nobody. Everyone tunes out the the the, the naysayer. You know, the, the sky is falling. You have to do that. And you have to point out deficiencies where they exist. But you also have to provide a solution or a model. Right. Synthesis of that. I think that's really important. What you just said. I I'm gonna keep that in my mind as I engage more folks. That you gotta you gotta do both, and and preferably you provide the right model, and then it just naturally, inquisitively forces people to say, well, what about the other model? And then they, right. they do their homework. 
Sure. So, so Marcus, you know, we've been doing twice daily live casts with different experts like yourselves, uh, like yourself in, in, in the food and agriculture world since COVID began. And, and one of the things that we keep hearing over and over again is the need for more regional and localized food systems, uh, you know, especially in the United States, but elsewhere in the world. But and while that sounds very sort of attractive to someone like me, who's sort of like, see, I told you so, we needed more localized food systems, that kind of thing. I also don't want to paint a very sort of naive or romantic picture of what dairy farming looks like. It's very arduous work. And, you know, the small family farmers that you're working with, they're, they're locked into like, they, it's hard for them to leave their farms for any amount of time because cows need to be milked. And it, it's, you know, it's very labor intensive, especially when you're doing it in a sustain, an environmentally sustainable way. There's a lot of knowledge uh, management that needs to happen. So, you know, I, I, I I, I just want sort of your perspective on, you know, can we have both big and small or does it, you know, or is there somewhere in between where, you know, you were talking about how the the larger dairy industry can maybe learn from what you're doing, but is there a place sort of in the middle? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, and the, the effects on the supply chain that COVID has brought to the surface is fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, you look at the, the dairy industry before that and the troubles we're having before that, and you're looking at the troubles that we're having now, in some ways they're kind of at odds with one another. It's, it's, it's crazy. But, um, you know, so two things. One, you know, not everyone can um, afford um, to support our model, and I totally get that and respect that. And those that can't but do want the nutrition of milk ought to be able to have access to that at a more reasonable price point, um, okay. a.k.a. the large dairies. You know, scale, you know, usually brings about a, a lower cost of finished goods. And so that's a hard question to answer. I, I, you know, you have yeah. so much of the population that does need access to, you know, lower alternatives, you know, whether it be private label in the case of milk. But at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, hidden costs in producing the cheapest anything right. now. And I think as a society, we're starting to get our arms around that, you know, the healthcare issues, this, you know, the land, the fertilizers, all that, I think we're gaining a, a much bigger appreciation for. But, you know, it's a, it's a really hard question to, to Absolutely. Make. Yeah, yeah I've absolutely. struggled with that one. You know, I to be candid, I've I've really struggled with that. That that's always been one of the hardest questions people ask. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around as well. But I'm glad you brought up that issue of true cost accounting in the food system. So you know, cheap milk might be you know uh, you know less dollars at, when you're checking out at the grocery store, but the the health and environmental and social implications. Uh, and costs that are, you know, end up further down the line. Those are the things that, that aren't accounted for. And, and I'm hoping, you know, we, we talk about what, you know, what are the silver linings from this pandemic during this super tragic time when, you know, more than a hundred thousand Americans are, 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 are now deceased because of it. You know, at least 250,000 people around the world are, are, are dead you know, how, how can we look for sort of the bright spots? And, and this might be a way to shine, you know, uh, 
to shine a light on on what our our, our food system currently r- really costs in terms of you know the toll on animals, the toll on the land, the toll on workers and people and farmers and and all of us who are sort of involved along the food chain. So I'm hoping that you know that that's one of the things that comes out of this. I, I think it will, I, and and I do as well. And I think you. You know, if we thought that globalization, that that trajectory was going to inevitably continue to to climb, I think that was a prevailing conventional wisdom pre-COVID-19. I think what this is showing us is that it will be a massive decoupling of, you know, global supply relationships to, to bring it back home in a much more intimate way in the interest of having control over all of those inputs that are required to go into any product. In our case, you know, it, our model is is surviving and working quite well through COVID because local production, local distribution, okay. local market, everything's kind of vertically integrated. But if we're dependent on, say, our raw supply of milk from overseas or even out of state in some cases, um, it could really be disrupted. So um, it, it's going to be fascinating to see the level of decoupling of global trade um, as we wrestle through this whole you know, pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had a crystal ball so I would know what was coming. You, you, talk, yeah. you, you talked earlier about how closely you work with your farmers. You're literally, you know, sitting at their kitchen tables talking uh, to, you know, the families and, and figuring stuff out. Can you, 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 you just said that, you know, the, your, your company is doing pretty well during this because of that small, small and, and localized distribution. How are your farmers doing during the, all of this? You know, luckily, um, we're able to continue to take every drop of milk that they produce. And, and you, you, you mentioned it earlier. They, they rarely take vacations, um, right. in part because, you know, cows give milk every day, tw- twice a day. They're, they're milked. And so just that reality grounds them mostly in the farm. Conversely, our obligation, as I see it, is to, to find a home or at least take every drop of milk that they produce. So from the supply side, we've been really fortunate. And what, what we've seen in, in our model is, you know, if 30% of our business was what we call food service, restaurants, tech campuses, universities, the other 70% was, was retail. And mm-hmm. since, you know, the shutdown, obviously the, the food service side has been decimated. And, and right. for us, we've seen that go as well. But it's been offset on, with the huge surge in demand in retail. And really, in part, people are looking at milk really differently than they did even two years ago. You know, you think about all the plant-based, you know, alternatives kind of being the new shiny objects out there. And, and again, I'm all for consumer choice, and I don't knock any consumer that migrates there. But I think throughout this process, people are asking those really fundamental questions. You know, what is best for my family? What is real about health and nutrition and what are the tried and true things that we can lean into in uncertain times? And, you know, I've always said milk is the original superfood. Um, and given what you get in terms of vitamin, nutrient contact with milk, it's also relatively affordable and it's got a lot of applications. And, you know, so for us, it's been, it's always like everybody else, I guess, right now, it's about keeping our employees safe. Absolutely. So important. And, uh, you know, I, I know that you've you've had a lot of response uh, to COVID-19 in the community. Can you talk about the Clover Cares program? Yeah, thanks. You know, we, you know, part of our earlier kind of piece was, you know, you, 
we're married to this model now. This model is, you know, really one of looking at ourselves as an experiment. And part of that experiment is looking at the holistic ecosystem and, and putting ourselves, well, frankly, last. When we got certified as a B Corp, Benefits Corporation, every year you have to up your game and you're committed to that pathway. One of the things we've always done was, you know, engage the community with um, however we could, monetarily through our time and talents for our people. But, um, you know, our local hospital, well, I heard the statistics um, about, you know, the lack of ventilators in the system. So back in March, we said, hey, how can we help now? Um, and so we were able to do, you know, give $100,000. It enabled them to buy three ventilators. and we wow put the charge out to others to say, hey, this is an example of how you can help. It can be really tangible. It can be really timely. So we put that challenge up on our billboards and through social and everything, and um, it's made a difference, which is awesome. I think, And I think everyone that, that can in this environment right now is doing something, making a huge difference, whether they're volunteering or doing what we're able to do. Um, it's just obviously the right thing to do, and it was, it was a no-brainer. Absolutely. And, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's not surprising to me that companies like yours and others, you know, we work very closely with Niven Ranch Port Company. As you know, they're doing similar things, you, you know, uh, fast casual chains like Panera. There's so many others. Well, I mentioned both of those because we have a, a podcast scheduled with them both um, next week that I think will be very interesting. And we'll talk about some of the things that, that you're doing because it, it's these, it's, you know, these smaller companies and, and, and smaller operations who have had sort of a mission to produce and, and uh, serve sustainable food that are kind of stepping up to the plate. And it, it's really inspiring to me. You know, it's, it's amazing. We look at all the consumer data and during times of uncertainty, like this pandemic, people are flocking back to brands that they know and trust, um, right. which I think is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that you call what you're doing an experiment because it, it, it leaves it open for, tr- you know, uh, trial and error. And I think that's what what's lacking in so many companies and, you know, nonprofits like Food Tank and, and philanthropic organizations and big businesses that there's not this ability to sort of try and, and fail and then try again. And I, I wonder, you know, do you think that be, because of sort of the economic toll um, that the that COVID-19 is happening, you know, we've had se- we've seen so many startups, you know, especially in, in your part of the country in California, you know, experiment and, and do all these things because they had venture capital money. But because of the economic toll of COVID-19, will there be more companies like yours that are allowed to experiment and, and have trial and error kind of things going on? Oh, I, I do. I think so, because I think that those companies that are have innovation and a propensity to take risks in their DNA, those will be the ones that thrive coming out of this whole thing. And uh, candidly, I think being publicly traded and, and having that dreaded quarterly uh, <laughs> earnings call always looming over you as a decision maker precludes your appetite to take risk and, and become... Right. Failing, you know, I always tell our team, like, hey, we, we've got to take pride in failing because if we don't fail, it means we're not taking any risks. I, I'll just share with you, our, our biggest failure was we were hearing loud and clear from our consumers, 
hey, we can't afford your organic, but we care passionately about non-GMOs, can you create a hybrid? Um, and, and so we did that, mm -hmm. source the GMO material. By definition, organics is GMO-free, but it's also a whole lot of other things. And so their point was, can you remove GMOs from traditional milk without all the upside expense of having to go all the way to organic? And so we did that. We sourced the feed. We had our dairies transition into that. And what we realized ultimately, once we commercialized that, that there just really wasn't the demand that we thought was there and mm -hmm. we ended up eating the whole project. Colossal, wow. colossal failure. But in the long run, I'm really proud of the failure and I want my team to as well because it meant that we were putting ourselves out there. And right. if it worked, then that was the new it. But in this case, it didn't. So let's be prepared to take that next risk and just hope that we, we win more than we lose. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I feel the same way. Being proud of failures. Uh, my co-founder, Bernie Pollock, and I, you know, joke about how, you know, many mistakes we make per week and per day and how we're, you know, because we're a small organization, we're able to pivot and, and you know, try other things and, and ultimately make things better. And I feel the same way about your company. You're, you're able to pivot. You're able to do all these interesting things and help in a really critical time of need. And that's, I think that is really going to be the future of food in so many ways. It's going to be these smaller and medium-sized companies who can be more flexible and have this ability to experiment and ultimately help both farmers and consumers, you know, achieve achieve the, the goals that each of those 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 entities want, you know, a, a food system that is again economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable. Totally agree. And once you can quantify that and communicate that to consumers, it, it, it's it's a no-brainer. They they're clamoring to support that. They just want to cut through all the noise and understand who's doing it um, and, and who's who's telling the truth and who's not. I mean, there's there's that whole issue, too. I mean, we see it in our politics daily, and consumers just really want to lean in to a model, to a brand, to a company, to people that they know and trust. And if that's another 10 cents for a pound of ground beef that they trust in that model – they're happy to do it. I mean, they're, right. they're liberated to do it. They're, they're, they want to spend more money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Marcus, you're the third generation to be involved in, in this company. Do you expect that your kids, you know, who I'm sure are probably going stir crazy at home right now, are they, do you, do you think they want to be involved in the company as they get older? You know, um, it's funny. You got me thinking about my kids. I say, you know, be proud to fail. I told my 10-year-old it doesn't work to justify a, a D on your latest math test. So early on, be proud to fail. Um, you know, I don't know. It's fascinating. My oldest is a sophomore. I think, you know, he's wrestling with, uh, you know, the stress sometimes he sees in dad and, you know, yeah. and maybe doesn't always fully appreciate all the, the benefit that comes with the cost of, Leading, but I, I sure hope so. It'd be a dream of mine, but at this point, I want to do everything to not bring that pressure to any of them. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's good parenting, I, uh, I'm sure. I, I want people to be able to get more information about you. They can go to CloverSonoma.com. Is there a way that they can help with some of the relief efforts you mentioned? Is that the best resource for them, Marcus? It, it, it is. There's a landing spot for our local hospitals um, on our website. So if there's an interest there, um, 
thank you on behalf of our healthcare providers and our community. And if your interests or passions lie elsewhere, um, my, my hope is you apply them there, but just apply them somewhere. That's great. Uh, so my last question, Marcus, is who is inspiring you the most right now during this really crazy time? Wow. My, my team, really. Um, every day I'm inspired by their keep calm, carry on attitude, their innovative way of problem solving, their way of cheering us all up. Uh, yeah, my, my team, for sure. I'm really lucky. Surrounded That's fantastic. Smarter people than I. <laughs> That's how I feel too. The people who work with us, it's it's a small team, but they are so inspiring and, and they're all much smarter than I am. So it's, it's a real pleasure to work with them. Marcus, I'm so glad I, I had the chance to talk to you. I hope we get to hang out in person again soon. Um, a reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Devin Clattell from the Rockefeller Foundation. Marcus, please stay well and thank you for all that you do. Great to be with you again. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Before we start, I, I'm I'm embarrassed and I need to admit something. It's like my confessional right now because I'm supposed to be an expert in all things food and, and I'm just not. I, I'm not well versed in, in the seafood sector, in, in marine resources, in aquaculture. Um, I've spoken at conferences about waste in, in the seafood industry. I visited uh, women's groups drying fish in places like uh, Ghana and the Gambia uh, and Kenya. But I'm really much better at talking about crop and, and livestock production and mixed farming systems that are terrestrial. So over the next few weeks, uh, Food Tank and I were going to use the live cast and the podcast as a way for me to learn about one of the most important sources of protein in the world, an industry that is an important source of employment for millions of coastal communities and many others, and an industry that is really uh, at risk right now because of overfishing, lack of regulation, uh, and and other problems. Uh, Climate change is, is obviously a big one. And so despite the hard work of organizations like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Fulton Fish Market, World Fish, uh, and the Nature Conservancy, who we'll be talking to today, there is a lot of education and awareness building, especially, I, I think, in the food and agriculture community, as well as for regular folks about the importance of our, of our marine resources and, and aquaculture. And that's why I'm so thrilled and, and honored today that Robert uh, Jones, the global lead uh, at the aquaculture program at the Nature Conservancy, is with me today. Um, his most recent work as the global lead uh, at TNC focuses on providing guidance for impact investing in the aquaculture sector. He oversees projects in seven countries that ensure aquatic food production is sustainable and nutritious. In 2019, he co-authored a report entitled Towards a Blue Revolution, Catalyzing Investment into Sustainable Aquaculture Production Systems. Uh, before joining TNC in 2016, he spent many years working on healthier aquaculture with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of Aquaculture and the United States Department of State focusing on fishing agreements. So he has a wide breadth of experience in all these issues I don't know about, so I know I'm going to have a ton of questions. Um, So thanks uh, for being uh, with me today, Rob. It's really uh, an honor to have you here. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
So I, I, you know, I think one of the first things that you can do for our listeners and viewers is really describe what aquaculture is, just sort of give us the basics. Yeah. So aquaculture is essentially uh, growing food in the water. So agriculture, growing food on land, aquaculture is the the marine and freshwater equivalent. Um, what is important to know about this sector? Actually, aquaculture, which is farmed fish, shellfish, and seaweed, uh, is now the fastest growing form of food production on the planet, growing at about 6% per year. Um, it's a $243 billion industry. It's larger than the beef industry. It's larger than all wild fisheries catch now, now combined. Um, and this rapid growth is actually something that is both an opportunity from a conservation mm-hmm. perspective, but also it's a big challenge if that sector grows in an unsustainable way. So for us at the Nature Conservancy, it's about driving that growth towards uh, sustainable solutions and not uh, negative impacts that we've seen in the past. So, so why does aquaculture often get a bad rap? What you know, I've heard of things like sea lice and the diseases that farmed fish get, and you know how they eat a lot of um, they eat other fish uh, uh, to you know to grow bigger and 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 produce more. Um, why such a bad rap, and why were these practices used? Yeah, so really there's four big impacts of um, aquaculture systems that we need to be concerned about. Uh, one is impacts to habitat, um, just from the way uh, a, a fish farm or a shrimp pond gets sighted, impacting those natural habitats. Uh, the other areas of impact that are of concern are water quality uh, issues, um, usually from fish effluent. Uh, impacts to wild stocks, which can come through parasite issues or escapement. And uh, finally, uh, uh, disease. So those those are the main issues that we need to be concerned about in aquaculture. Um, you know, why have impacts historically happened? Well, actually, if we look at aquaculture, it's a very new field in its modern era. Um, it's only a field that's about 50 years old. So there was a huge learning curve in, in these um, right the best practices here and how to manage those impacts. Things are improving um, and we see a number of solutions that can drive this industry forward in a way that does not impact ecosystems and and, uh, ensures a healthy uh, ocean. Absolutely, absolutely. So can you dive a little bit deeper into sort of the habitat issues that come about from from fish farming? Yeah, so, you know, uh, one, the historical example that's often pointed to is impacts um, that have occurred due to shrimp, shrimp farming, especially in the early days of that mangrove degradation, um, you know, basically cutting down mangroves to put in shrimp ponds. A lot of that has stopped as that first wave of development has really happened. But there's actually other ways that we can impact habitat as well. It can be impacted indirectly, such as through effluent you know, water pollution coming from fish farms can actually have this spillover effect onto um, and impact uh, habitat, which is important for a variety of marine life. And, you know, I, I mentioned sea lice and, and other sort of problems that come about from, from fish farming. And I know people have sort of compared fish farming to factory farming of livestock and, you know, crowding. Uh, you know, a lot of fish together that, you know, are sort of a, a monoculture among themselves can create problems. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that as well? 
Yeah, you know, sea lice is like a huge issue right now, particularly for the salmon industry. I think what's um, uh, what we're optimistic about is this is a huge industry for uh, a huge, huge challenge for industry as well. It's costing industry a lot of money to control sea lice. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for business. So industry is working to address some of those concerns. I think um, a lot more work obviously needs to be done. But there's some systemic changes to aquaculture and fish farming that we see as being important for addressing um, these major challenges, whether it's sea lice or habitat impacts, um, disease impacts to wild stocks. Um, there's two main things for fin fish farming that we need to make sure are done and going forward. One is the development of land-based recirculating aquaculture systems, which is mm-hmm. instead of farming on, in the coastal environment with net pens, farming on land with uh, advanced technologies and water treatment systems. Those farms have the ability to treat wastewater. Farms are the fish are physically removed from the marine environment. Uh, they there, thereby don't have the opportunity to interact with those wild stocks and those sea lice transfer issues to wild. Uh, wild salmon stocks is not as much of an issue. The other solution that we see as important is getting these fish farms offshore uh, into the open ocean environment where the impacts to habitat and water quality can be dramatically less. So those are the two areas for fish that we see as important. But I think, you know, um, beyond fish, right, we, we see what's really a big opportunity for us in the aquaculture space is the development of the unfed species which are the right. shellfish and the seaweed. Those are really the ones that have the clearest environmental value proposition. Yeah, we absolutely need to reform and do better with the fish farming, but we need also to work on the development of um, what we like to call restorative shellfish and seaweed farming. Right. Right. And so that's oysters. That's other, you know, I, like uh, organizations like the Billion Oyster Project and others who are trying to restore coastlines. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. The, the Billion Oyster Project is a strong partner of TNC in the restoring of uh, oyster habitats. Uh, Nature Conservancy has done a lot of work on restoring and recovering oyster habitats um, around the world. We've done around 200 projects to recover wild Hi. oyster stocks around the world, which has been a tremendous success. But one thing we're looking at here is actually the restorative potential of commercial farmed oysters, seaweed, and shellfish. So what we're asking is bringing some of these concepts of regenerative agriculture into aquaculture. And mm-hmm. we've developed this concept of restorative aquaculture in which carefully designed farms um, can actually have a positive benefit to the surrounding environment, for, right. in the case of shellfish and seaweed. And what are some of those benefits? Well, um, Shellfish filter water. They can filter up to 50 gallons of water per day. Seaweed can remove nutrients from coastal waterways that are in excess and suffering from water pollution, known as eutrophication. These farms can actually have a significant habitat value for wildlife. Um, Some of our new research um, that we're doing now at TNC in cooperation with the shellfish industry is is showing pretty significant um, um, abundance of fish around these farms compared to reference sites. 
That's so exciting. And I, I want to give a shout out to some food tech interns who are writing some pieces right now on on the seaweed industry and how, you know, that's growing and, and how beneficial, as you described, it can be. Um, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of, of moving um, aquaculture to uh, onto land. And you know, we've seen a lot of this growing over the last, you know, five or 10 years. And what is interesting to me is that I think a lot of it combines sort of maybe ancient fish farming practices that, you know, communities in, in Asia used with some of these high tech uh, ways of doing things. So a combination of high and low tech. Am, am I wrong in sort of assuming that because the, you're reusing nutrients, there's it, it's sort of a more circular system? Yeah, so recirculating aquaculture system is a pretty high tech uh, type of innovation. So, you know, this is basically um, large tanks and um, advanced wastewater treatment technology that's uh, integrated into that fish farm. Actually, a lot of that technology has been developed um, for human applications. Uh, companies like Meolia are kind of the leaders in wastewater treatment technology. They're developing innovations for, for now the fish farming sector, knowing that this wastewater treatment is a huge, a huge uh, uh, opportunity for business and a challenge that needs to be solved. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. This, this is high tech in terms of um, aquaculture development. Um, and we see opportunities for high tech as well as low tech solutions in aquaculture. So RAS being that high tech solution and mm-hmm. often bivalve and seaweed aquaculture is very, very low tech. If you look at the way it's practiced around the world. Got so it. we think where there's, there's, uh, opportunities for both as the sector advances. Absolutely. So I'm hoping you can explain sort of your, uh, the Nature Conservancy's relationship with sort of, you know, the, the aquaculture industry and, and how that works and what sort of, you know, uh, advice you're able to provide and how receptive they are to it. Yeah. So we do a lot of work, um, with the shellfish and seaweed farming community, both in the United States and around the world. Um, in the United States, what we've been working on with the shellfish farming community is an examination of um, the ecological effects these farming systems are having on the marine environment. Um, we're very interested in the positive benefits, and we're very interested in also in knowing the negative impacts as we see them. Um, industry has been super receptive to working with us on this, actually, because they've anecdotally seen um, their farms and some of the possible benefits that they have around the farm, such as fish life or um, not having a negative impact on seagrass communities, Mm -hmm. um, all the benefits, but they haven't had a third party um, unbiased, uh, you know, science partner to work with them on that. So we're doing this with a number of shellfish partners uh, in in the United States uh, that include some of the larger shellfish growers, um, such as Taylor Shellfish Farms and Island Creek Oysters and Hog Island Oysters being a few. California as being some of those partners. Um, overseas, we work with um, a lot of the small-scale farmers that do seaweed aquaculture in places like Indonesia, um, where we work in coastal communities. Um, seaweed is a real uh, one of the only sources of livelihoods um, in some of these location, remote locations and in indigenous communities in Indonesia. There, mm-hmm. we're working on helping improve the environmental practices of those uh, seaweed farming industries. As, as well as helping those farmers farmers improve um, 
uh, the productivity of their farming system. So basically going for a double win in terms of livelihoods and improving the environmental performance of uh, seaweed farming practices. I don't think I fully understand sort of the environmental problems associated with seaweed farming. Can you go into that? Yeah. So, you know, these systems, right, they have great potential to provide restorative benefits to the surrounding environment under best practices. Mm -hmm. Not everywhere in the world that is the case. So today, uh, business as usual practices in places like Indonesia that farm seaweed at a large scale actually have had uh, do have negative impacts on the marine environment. And a couple of those that, uh, that I can point out are impacts to corals and seagrasses. Like we have seaweed mm. farmers that have been tying off their ropes to coral, which obviously totally wow. unsustainable practice for digging up seagrass beds um, to put in seaweed farms. Um, marine plastic pollution is actually an issue in some of these communities. Okay. It goes beyond seaweed, obviously. There's a lot mm-hmm. a lot of issues with marine plastic com- pollution, but marine aquaculture is occurring r- immediately in the coastal zone. And, um, you know, the small ropes that they use, the beachfront litter um, that results the plastic bottles that are being used for floats often end up in the marine environment. So those, so those are some of the things that we are working with those communities on. Um, as well as helping them um, in terms of their production practices to improve the quality of the seaweed. And just to be clear, it, you know, I, I, I'm very sensitive to blaming fishers or farmers for anything. And, you know, these are communities who were unaware of the consequences in so many ways, and they're just trying to, to make a living by, you know, tying it off on coral. That's why it's so important that organizations like the Nature Conservancy are able to work directly with communities as well as industry to, you know, uh, uh, help educate and create awareness about around these best practices. And, and I'm wondering, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how communities respond when you or your colleagues come in and sort of, you know, start, uh, you know, talking to them and listening to, to what they're going through and, and their concerns. Yeah, actually, this is one of the reasons why we work on seaweed aquaculture in the first place in places like Indonesia So, you know, we have a significant effort as the Nature Conservancy to protect um, marine ecosystems in in places like Indonesia. We've done and set up alongside partners an extensive network of marine protected areas. Um, And we have been seeking community buy-in for those types of projects. Now, you know, and often in those conversations, we ask the community, well, how can we help and support the community how can we work with you and to mutually achieve our conservation objectives and objectives for these communities? Time and time again, we heard a lot in these coastal communities in Indonesia that they wanted our support to work with them on seaweed aquaculture. And we're very interested in help, our help to help support them in their livelihoods to improve their farming productivity. Um, and that that livelihood was very important to respect those marine protected areas. So in other words, if this livelihood situation, if they're not able to make money um, on seaweed aquaculture, the likelihood of that marine protected area being respected um, would be low. So, um, you know, we engage, we have all local staff in in Indonesia. Um, We work very closely with partners. We um, community engagement and working with indigenous communities is a priority for TNC and doing so in the right way. so, you know, I think it's been it's been uh, successful and we're looking to see where we can go with this program from here. 
So interesting. I'm wondering, you know, I, I when I was talking at the beginning, I talked about how I've seen um, projects where women are drying fish to prevent food waste and to provide, you know, an important source of protein throughout the year. When we're talking about aquaculture, what is sort of the 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 you know the the ratio of women to men working in aquaculture? I imagine it's a lot more men than women. But again, you're teaching me a lot today. Oh, actually, it depends. It's very sector specific. Um, but you know, in a lot of sectors, there's a lot of women involved with the uh, farming of seaweed. So Indonesia, most. Uh, most of the seaweed farmers are women. We also have a project in Tanzania there. Most of the seaweed farmers are women. Interesting. In other fields and in, in sectors of the industry, it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a main driver for us as well. Uh, gender empowerment of communities um, is, is an important priority for us and one of the reasons we work in, in this sector. And I also imagine that keeping youth, you know, in these communities so that they're not moving away to cities to find other jobs, that might, you know, I imagine that's an important part of this work as well, sort of keeping these communities not just, you know, sort of surviving, but really thriving. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, we have a project in Belize as well, where we're working with fishing communities to introduce seaweed farming for the first time. You know, we're seeing a lot of impacts to wild fish stocks. In Belize, um, conch and lobster are really the main harvest there. It hasn't been that consistent in recent years. Fishermen are struggling to make a living there. Um, seaweed aquaculture is the solution, one of the solutions that we're, we're working on and working with those fishing communities to see if that's an opportunity for them to uh, support their livelihoods, uh, support their way of life, mm -hmm. uh, maintain the lifestyle of being on the water but also designing the farms in a way that actually provides positive benefits back to those fish stocks. So what's right. actually been amazing about the seaweed farms that we've seen in Belize is actually the life that lives around them, including the baby lobsters. So the fishermen oh, wow. are very, very excited about this because they're seeing their livelihoods be supported, but also seeing the regenerative and restorative benefits of the farms that support the, the fish stocks that they are after. So um, that's great. And actually, you know, with COVID um, in a place like Belize, which is heavily reliant upon tourism right. as a primary source of, of local incomes, basically that evaporated kind of overnight, that tourist Absolutely. market. So what is, how can we support livelihoods uh, in a sustainable way in these communities that's resilient to shocks? Um, this was one, obviously, we didn't see coming, but other shocks like climate change. Mm -hmm. um, these are these are uh, important things that we're thinking about and in, in our initiatives. And I want to get into COVID a little bit more. You talked about tourism, but it's also, you know, uh, and obviously restaurants are a part of the tourism industry. But with so many restaurants, you know, either closing or not being able to serve at full capacity because it's takeaway, this is having a huge impact right now. And and you, you mentioned that this is a shock that we didn't see coming. I mean, I think some people would dispute that, you know, this was bound to happen at some point, just like climate change is bound to happen. But, you know, preparing for these shocks. But what, what's happening right now is a lot of fishers are, are simply out of, you know, they're out of luck in, in so many cases because they don't have a market to sell. It, it, can you talk a little bit about the economic impact on some of the folks that you're working with? Yeah. You know, I think the aquaculture industry particularly has been affected by kind of three 
three types of impacts, at least from my perspective as I've seen it. One is the big demand side drop in uh, food service. And the industries that have targeted a food service market historically have been the most impacted. We can get into that. Um, the other aspects of um, have that have been affected or other segments that have been affected have been ones that have targeted air freight um, to access mm-hmm. markets. Um, the salmon industry, for example, um, relies upon air freight, mostly um, uh, commercial airlines to get their product to market. A lot of that slowed down. That was an impact. And then there's a third impact around operations, maybe not as greatly impacted as some other uh, food sectors, but certainly uh, the processing facilities and farm operations under a time where we need to maintain social distancing um, is impacted. Um, but, you know, the shellfish industry in particular in, in this country, in the United States, has been very hard hit by by COVID, yeah. um, primarily because they target that, that food service sector historically. You know, raw bars and high-end restaurants are the right. ones that sell those oysters. Actually, 90% of the product that those far- these farmers grow goes into um, a restaurant setting. And that demand basically evaporated overnight, leaving farmers really scrambling on kind of where to go. They have a lot of product in their farm right now. You know, it'll still live, but the longer you keep it, the higher risk. And they can potentially grow too big to access a market. And it kind of creates a logjam for farming operations. So this is actually a very significant challenge uh, right now. Absolutely. And do you foresee a lot of, of uh, fish, aquaculture, uh, fish loss or waste because of this? I mean, you mentioned that they're keeping stocks longer, they're growing bigger. But what happens, you know, the longer this pandemic goes on? Well, for the oyster farmers, I think, you know, the, the opportunity is to target new uh, new markets. So historically, they've been very reliant upon the food service industry. Now these groups are trying to look into, um, can they go direct to consumer? And that's mm-hmm. been a growing trend in food in general. Um, right. And now here's the opportunity to develop that. Um, some of these growers have through their own websites, have their own uh, channels, which sell directly. Others are going to third-party platforms like Gold Belly and testing out these new perches. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some, you know, there's some barriers to that. For example, you know, a lot of people uh, might not, know that this opportunity exists or they might not know right. how to eat oysters at home. You know, it's kind of intimidating to open these things sure. up. Actually, it's really quite easy to do, but um, most people don't, don't know that, you know, on YouTube, there's a lot of good videos that you can look at to show you how to do that. That's it's great. actually pretty simple. Um, but that's really the opportunity there um, is to develop those markets. We want to get the word out. Um, there's some great resources online that folks can look at. Um my uh, colleague, Barton Seaver, the chef, has a weekly webinar that he is doing on yep. seafood education, focusing Fantastic. a lot on uh, Julie Chu, who is a food blogger, um, she's, she's got a whole le- a database set up on our website showing people where you can buy oysters direct from the farmers. I think that's great. You know, we need more of that uh, to, to get this opportunity out there. Yeah, and this might be an in- an instance where, you know, uh, 
uh, aquaculture farmers can learn from what, you know, uh, crop and livestock farmers have been doing, you know, direct sales, websites, you know, a lot of those folks have also had to pivot during the pandemic and set up on online retail and that kind of thing. But yeah, the work that Barton does to to create awareness is is, is amazing. And we need more of that. So people are not so scared to try out new products, especially now when, you know, diversified diets and, and having access to a variety of foods is really important for our immunity and, and things like that. I, I want to get back to the report that you released last year um, towards a blue revolution and catalyzing investment into sustainable aquaculture production systems. We've heard a lot of uh, about you know food tech startups and investments and things like um, Beyond Meat and uh, you know these plant based sources of fish. Why do we need more investment uh, in, in aquaculture as well? Yeah, I mean, we need more investment, I think, in sustainable aquaculture production systems, this offshore recirculating systems and bivalves and seaweed. You know, we already know the sector is growing overall. Um, I think one thing that we've recognized is that there's a financing gap around some of these new innovations. They tend to be higher cost producers. They tend to be higher risk, um, higher risk opportunities. Um, so we, th- we wanted to encourage and make a compelling argument that these solutions can ultimately be, um, financially sustainable as well as, env- as environmentally sustainable as we're seeing the environment change, um, uh, kind of by the day. You know, the right. technologies are becoming refined. The costs are coming down. Um, you know, the, regulators are beginning to want to regulate against bad aquaculture, which leans in favor of these new types of production systems. Um, so all this is, is to say, you know, we see an opportunity there. We want to encourage smart uh, investment in the sector, according to rigorous environmental guidelines mm-hmm. um, and to support this industry to grow, um, you know, in a, in a way um you know, these sustainability innovations in a way that's similar to the way, you know, energy solutions were just emerging 10 or 20 years ago. So that was kind of the impetus behind the report um, uh, that we put out and why we thought it would be important to help provide that guidance to investors right now and how they should think about um, the sector sustainably. One question I have is, you know, as we've seen in in, in crop and, and livestock agriculture, the, you know, the farmers get less and less of, of the sort of profit that comes from selling their products, right? They, you know, they, they don't make as much money because there's a whole sort of system, you know, with middlemen and, you know, or selling to big corporations or being vertically integrated. How can you ensure sort of in this sustainable investment or sustainable aquaculture investment, uh, um, environment that that uh fishers and and fish farmers really you know maintain the bulk of the of their earnings from the the products that they're selling yeah i think for the sustainability um play here consumers gotta pay be willing to pay more for the sustainable products that hasn't really um you know there's some evidence to suggest that might be the case we need more people to really be willing to do that um, in terms of ensuring profits actually make their way to the the uh, producer, that's a challenging one. Um, but, you know, we've seen a trend in, in aquaculture um, or the seafood segments where there's been more either direct-to-consumer or less middlemen 
um, in, in the seafood business and some of the retailers wanting to go direct to producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hopefully passes on some of the, that, those gains onto the producer. But that's important. I think it's a good point. Um, and, you know, just as uh, other segments, farmers and, and fishermen uh, are challenged in this way, so are aquaculturists. Absolutely. I'm also interested in sort of the types of infrastructure that will be need to, you know, be uh, constructed on land to be implemented on land to sort of handle more uh, aquaculture operations. What, you know, I, I, as I mentioned before, I've seen drying facilities on a small scale. What other kind of infrastructure needs to be in place? Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of aquaculture development is constrained by logistical potential um, around the world. So, you know, you need to have things like roads, um, airports to access those markets. You need um, water. um, You need electricity. You need um, some sort of entertainment or places to go for your staff to retain them. Um, So this is actually difficult for aquaculture because a lot of it happens in very remote settings. So, Actually, the, one of the biggest constraints here um, in the developing world for aquaculture is that logistical capability um, and to, to develop it. So, you know, it's not as much a constraint here in, in the United States. Um, there's a couple of other considerations, um, you know, that tend to be uh, acknowledged as deep bottlenecks for industry development. One is um, the availability and cost of uh, high quality feeds in the case of fin mm-hmm. fish. And in the case of all, almost all aquaculture, the availability of high-quality uh, fingerlings or spat, which are produced through a hatchery, that um, producers will buy. So if you don't really have those two things, it's very hard to do aquaculture. And if mm-hmm. you don't have logistics, it's very hard to do aquaculture. So um, those are those are things that um, are commonly identified as as challenges in industry development from from the producer standpoint. And that takes interaction between organizations like yours, industry, and communities themselves to sort of solve all together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I want to go back to this sort of consumer awareness angle um, because I, I think it's such an important one. Uh, you know, again, people have very sort of uh, a lot of, of misconceptions about aquaculture and, you know, its impact on the environment and, and sort of, you know, maybe poorer quality than wild caught fish. What is the Nature Conservancy doing to sort of, you know, um, uh, get around those misconceptions and, and, and break down some of the myths? Yeah, you know, we we are um, actively through our own channels promoting um what we think and see as being sustainable aquaculture through our own programs. We also engage with other organizations that are working on um, identifying uh, sustainable products and production systems. We work very closely with the Global Aquaculture Alliance, which certifies aquaculture products. We provide input into other groups like the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch that has a rating system for um, from those for uh, the, the sustainability of both aquaculture and, and, and wild products. So, you know, we'd really encourage um, uh, folks to take a look at those resources that are out mm-hmm. there. Honoree Bay Aquarium, Global Aquaculture Alliance, Aquaculture Stewardship Council are all places and eco labels to kind of look for um, mm-hmm. when you're purchasing aquaculture or, or uh, 
a farmed seafood product in the marketplace. Yeah, and Seafood Watch, I can't say enough good things about them. They're very, it's very easy to sort of look up, you know, what fish you're considering buying and, and seeing how it rates so that they're always a good resource. Um, the Nature Conservancy is also a great res- resource. People can go to nature.org uh, to find out more information. So, um, Robert, my, my last question usually to folks is um, – who is inspiring you? So I'll give you a minute to think about that one. But pre-COVID, sort of uh, BC before COVID, I always the first question I always asked on the podcast what was what was uh, you know the guest's favorite food memory? And I'm wondering if you have a favorite fish or a, a, you know meal that you've had in a place like Indonesia that you can share with us before we we have the final question. Okay. Um. Favorite food food memory. I'm gonna st- well I'll stick try it true to my aquaculture stuff. There's a there's a dish that my mom usually makes for uh, Christmas Eve dinner. It's uh, linguine with clam sauce, and that's like a tradition tradition that we have in our family. And I now I I make that myself. So that's a that's a food uh, that you know is is near and dear to me. That's great. No wonder you're in aquaculture. Um, and, and then again, my, my last question is, who is inspiring you the most right now during this, you know, crazy, chaotic and, and uncertain time because of COVID-19? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, you know, I think um, right now, you know, I, I'm definitely keeping up with my podcasts and I value the accuracy, integrity of uh reliable news sources. So I think some of the work that the Times have been doing to highlight some of these studies in case, um, in specific cases and what's been going on in places in my own backyard here in New Jersey um, with COVID um, has been incredibly useful and as a service to the general public. So, you know, that's uh, probably one thing that that's uh, inspiring to me right now. That's awesome. You're the first person over the last two months who have sort of listed journalists as people who inspire them. And I think that's more important now than ever before because of, of our, our very turbulent, uh, political, uh, system here in the United States and, and all of the sort of misinformation that's going on. So thank you for giving them a shout out. They deserve it. Um, and thank you so much for joining me today. Again, folks can go to nature.org to find out more information and a reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please join me on our next episode when I'll be ta- talking to Marcus Benedetti, uh, the CEO of the organic dairy company, Clover Sonoma. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today. Thank you. Stay well. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.